Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Spin crew becomes a book club in today's bully pulpit. Listen to their thoughts on Rosaria Butterfield's new book, Openness Unhindered. Keep listening at the end of the podcast where we'll tell you how to enter a drawing to win a copy of that book. So welcome to the Mortification of Spin, and I'm here with Carl and Todd, and we've had something we've been doing for a while now that um, I don't know that Carl and Todd are the most comfortable with. I just haven't used the term for them that us women like to use, which is a book club. Mm. We do, we partake in a bit of a book club here at MOS, and so lately we have decided to read Rosaria Butterfield's latest book, Openness Unhindered. And there's just so much to talk about in here that we thought we would uh, devote the next two bully pulpits to uh, discussing Rosaria's new book. So welcome to the book club, Carl and Todd. Man, I feel really feminine Pinkies right now. out. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Did I'm, you want to bring some treats? This is a new part of my journey. I'm, yeah, exactly. I don't know if I want to be a part of that tribe. my feminine side yeah. even, as we, even as we speak. <laughs> you know how many dudes are going to make fun of us for this, Truman? Yeah. Well, uh, all I can say is open. I'm authentic. There you go. Very yeah. authenticity leads yeah. them to mock me. Yeah. I feel Infinite very authentic. authentic. Possibly mm-hmm. more authentic than ever at this particular moment. Yeah. Perhaps mm-hmm. Openness Unhindered is a good title right. for right. our book club. I, I think. I mean, first of all, let's just kind of uh, relieve the, uh, the, the the suspense here and say that this is a book we we we've liked. Okay. Yes. There you go. I mean, I've I've already like been enthusiastically it. recommending it to people. It's it's a terrific follow up, as you said earlier, Amy. The the sequel does not disappoint in this it case. It does not disappoint. I was. Um, it's a page turner, really. It's mm. such a quick read because it's so interesting. Yeah. And she's a great writer. She's an excellent communicator. I think she did an even better job in this book with the writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I noticed the, um, the typefacing is a little different with this one and the, um, the way they laid it out. I like how she's written a popular level book that it, it's neither watered down nor condescending. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet, like, so she uses some terms that maybe um, some readers aren't familiar with, but then they put the little definition there on the side. Right. I thought right. that was kind of helpful. Yep. Yeah. And, and you, just so that you find know, the it, definitions of these simple words quite helpful. Eh? <laughs> I didn't have to carry my big dictionary with me. It's great. I, Todd could have done with some pictures. <laughs> I would love picture. Would I love been pictures. Could have done a picture dictionary. I mean, um, just listen, imagine Todd would. I'm, I make no apologies for liking pictures. Um, um, but the the, the book. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with her first book, it is largely autobiographical. This book is a follow-up where she takes some important themes and develops them. She she deals in the first chapter a little bit again with with her conversion and the nature of, of her conversion from where she was. Then she gets into issues that are very, very helpful and, and timely, but also timeless. So she's dealing with human ontology. You know, who are we? Um, are, are categories of sexual orientation proper? Um... Or, or should we understand ourselves in, in different ways? And, uh, of course, she really tackles the whole issue of sexual orientation, homosexual sin, etc. And we want to deal kind of in this briefer podcast with, with how she, 
she tackles those issues of human identity, sexual orientation, sexual sin. Yeah, I mean, the first part of the book is, in some ways, I, it, it caught me unawares because the first section is very much uh, almost a mini Puritan theology of conversion. Mm-hmm. I thought she doesn't uh, come straight in on the the sexual identity and sexual politics issue. She sets it very appropriately against this broader background of, uh, of anthropological concerns, uh, the nature of sin and repentance, uh, engages in a, a very powerful uh, assertion of biblical repentance yes. and an implicit mm-hmm. polemic against the kind of stuff that we've seen from Tully and Chivijan and company mm-hmm. about what repentance is. So on one level, I think the book is extremely useful. It's the kind of thing you could give to a, a new Christian just to read that first section, yes. because mm-hmm. this will help them understand what repentance and faith are. And rightly, she then sets the issue of, of homosexuality, of same-sex attraction, etc., etc., within that context of that broader anthropological and theological discussion. And for me, I think that that is the key to this book's success and why it is so helpful. There are some excellent books out there that deal directly and mostly with homosexuality. We need that right now at our moment. This book deals with those issues equally well, but what is so helpful is she places the issue of the sin of homosexuality in the larger context of what is genuine conversion to Christ and what repentance from sin actually means. And I think you're right, Carl, she draws heavily upon the Puritans. Most of all, she just draws from Scripture. But she, she helpfully shows how a, a reformed uh, hermeneutic is, uh, actually captures what we need to know about what genuine re- repentance is. She puts the lie to the notion that, that failure is okay and that failure is noble while not being legalistic she doesn't then collapse into some sort of uh, sentimentality um, over our sin and she pushes that into the issue of identity as well then by you know i think correctly picking up on the the basic pauline categories fundamental identity is either in adam or in christ there are a lot of other micro-identities, we might say, some legitimate, some illegitimate, mm-hmm. you know, being English, being American, being mm-hmm. male, being female. These are you know, legitimate micro-identities that have no particular moral connotations with them. Right. Uh, our ultimate identity as human beings, though, is either in Adam or in mm-hmm. Christ. So any notion of sexual identity needs to be dramatically relativized over against the background of, uh, uh, you know, an Adam Christology, for want of a better term. Yeah, and this is this is really important because I know within my own denomination, the PCA, we have we have some of my brother pastors who seem to have really uh, taken up these worldly categories of of human identity. They've granted that there are quote gay people and straight people. They've just granted that there's LGBT people. And she does an excellent job of, of tracing the history of those categories mm-hmm. and challenging that biblically and saying what we really are is male and female in the image of God. And that, I love how, and that the sorry. Bible didn't overlook something by not right. giving us the categories of, quote, gay and straight. Well, I love how she traces kind of historically the usage of the word sexuality and mm-hmm. then leading to this whole idea of sexual orientation. But she says sexuality moved from a verb, practice, yeah. to noun, people. 
And with this grammatical move, a new concept of humanity was born, the idea that we are oriented or framed by our sexual desires, that our differing sexual desires and different objects of desire made up a separate species of people. Mm -hmm. And that self-representation and identity rooted now in sexual orientation and not in the purposes of God for his image bearers. Yeah, I was surprised you didn't mention Philip Reef in that context with his mm. his notion of the emergence of psychological man, because what she's mm-hmm. describing there really is the the inward turn. I think she links it correctly, links it to romanticism mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sees Freud as an heir yeah. of the romantics. Yeah, but this idea that that human identity is something that ultimately comes from within. Rather mm-hmm. than say, in the ancient world, I think Reef talks about political man. Man found his identity in the polis, in the political community. In the Middle Ages, there was religious man. Man found his uh, identity in, in the religious framework that the church provided. Uh, in the early Enlightenment, there was economic man who found his, his identity in the economic relations that existed. Now we're in an era where our identity comes from within us. It's all about being authentic, true to oneself, right. Uh, right. having a particular psychological identity right. or psychosexual and, identity perhaps. Right. And so when, when, when pastors and churches, and I'm speaking about those, are, those that are within traditionally conservative confessional denominations, just grant those worldly categories that come out of as I think she points out, well, romanticism and then later more codified by, by Freud, we've given up tremendously important territory at that point. Because mm-hmm. it's very difficult to say to someone, I grant that this is your ontology, that this is mm-hmm. your identity. How do you repent exactly who yeah. you are? Right. But I'm going to forbid the behavior, but, I, but I'll grant that it's who you are. And the irony is, of course, that so many pastors who are like that are the ones who are talking about culture and mission all the time. And yet they are staggeringly ignorant of the history of their own culture. And that's what's so ironic about some of the the people. I don't want to pick on the PCA, but they happen to provide (laughs) us with the best examples. Well, yes, I do want to pick on the PCA. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, But these missional guys often seem to be clueless about history. Yeah. They uh-huh. take culture, ironically, as a given. A given. Right. They don't understand that it comes loaded with a narrative and a history. These are their terms. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they're not interested in listening to somebody like me because I'm a right-wing reactionary as far as they're concerned. I just yeah. happen to be one of the guys who's doing work on the history of right. the culture that they're looking at and, frankly, simply not understanding as they approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. And... One of the things I've noticed um, in, in actually corresponding with some guys who are, uh, shall we say, in, in the progressive wing of, of, of my denomination. Perhaps is the willfully, that, willfully historically ignorant wing of your denomination, Todd. Well, okay, that? that's, that's, prob- that's probably appropriate. Um, but one of the things that's, that, that's troubling, and, and this is what I love about what she does well in this book, is we were talking before we went on air you know, she really does make a strong effort, and you can tell she's making an effort to be kind, to be generous, um, to not unnecessarily offend. And yet, what do you find when she goes to places and speaks? You find public protests, mm-hmm. you find death threats, not because she hasn't been kind, but because she's been clear. And what my missional friends in my denomination don't seem to understand is that it's not our approach or our tone that they hate. 
it's our doctrine. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they feel very comfortable, for instance, to boldly rail against the Confederate flag, but be very vague on homosexuality, is that they don't want to speak clearly on their culture's favorite sins. And and what I think Rosaria does very well is she's a model for how to be ironic, if you want to use that word, how to be generous in tone, but biblically clear. And she still, because of that, is protested, receives death threats, etc. Uh, pastors in my denomination are going to need to understand that if we're clear on homosexuality, but very generous, we're still going to be hated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it, she models something very pastoral with that as well, because you know, a pastor's job is to call us to repentance. You know, you're showing us the way to forgiveness of sin. And she just speaks so wonderfully of repentance. She says repentance is the posture of the Christian. And I really think in that she connects this whole grace versus obedience Mm -hmm. um, dichotomy that people like to set up so beautifully. Yeah. Yes. Celebratory failure. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think that was a a blog written by Jen Wilkin that was so important in a response to the contemporary grace Mm -hmm. movement. This chapter in this book on repentance, as both of you have already mentioned, is worth the price of the book Mm -hmm. um, because of of how clear it is and how how biblical uh, it is. And it's a strong corrective to some of the goofy notions that that have been going on in in reformed-ish circles. There are one or two areas where I give a little bit of pushback, I have to say, in the book. And Mm -hmm. I want to set this against the context of I found the book overwhelmingly helpful. And I also very much appreciated the the firm but ironic tone throughout. But I am not convinced that one can democratize all sins in quite the way I think she tries to at one or two points. It does seem to me that Romans 1 is talking about peculiarly bad things. Abortion, for example, not caring for one's child is a sign that things have come to a pretty bad pass. It's part of God's judgment on you that he abandons you to the worst. Mm -hmm. Now, I can understand reacting against uh, a history of the church that has tended to single out I would say particularly sexual sins and prioritize mm-hmm. them as being worse than others, you know, masturbation or something like that. These are things mm-hmm. that are sort of we've typically zeroed in on over the last 100, 200, 300, 400 years, whatever. It's particularly bad. But I would want to say that Romans 1 does not, to me, it, it, can't, it, it, it is talking about some kind of cascading immorality. Yes and cascading judgment of God at that Mm -hmm. point. And the other part, and and sort of partly connected to that, is I think it's on page uh, 141 where she says this, you know, we must stop claiming that the singleness experienced by people with unwanted homosexual desires is just like heterosexual singleness. For some this may be so, but for others the unique fingerprint of pain and loneliness conjured by unwanted homosexual desire is brought to a place of agony by such comparisons. Obviously you've got to be pastorally sensitive in dealing Mm -hmm. with somebody struggling with with homosexual desires. But Mm -hmm. I fear that at at that moment in the book, she runs the risk of making the struggle against same-sex attraction somehow more heroic or more tragic 
mm-hmm. than the struggle against other sinful desires. I think that the loneliness of, uh, of the heterosexual person who, whose desires are entirely legitimate, if mm-hmm. I can put it that way, might actually be worse. Yeah. Because they're desiring something that is a good thing. That's good. If it's yeah. the, the girl who's single, she's desiring to have a husband and to have children. Those are good things that she's yeah. desiring and good things that the Lord, for whatever reason, is denying her at that right. point. And the same with guys as well. And I'm unwilling to make the struggle of somebody against same-sex attraction and the singleness that that imposes upon them somehow more virtuous and heroic. Right. I'm not quite sure that's what she's saying there, but mm-hmm. she certainly seems to be open mm-hmm. to that kind of reading. It's, a, think, minor, it's a minor flaw, yeah. and I understand why she, what she's overreacting sure. against, but we don't want to go down that route. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you there 100%. I'm wondering if what she's referring to, though – may also be some of the um, conflicts she alluded to earlier in the book of um, what, how homosexuals or those with homosexual desires are looked at in trying to form regular same-sex friendships. Hmm. And I do think that that is an added... Um, sure. An added... Probably an added burden. Burden, yeah. yeah. Thank you for giving me the right word to yeah. say there. So, I mean... Yeah, that- yeah. That can be very hurtful when you're trying to have godly same-sex friendships, right. but uh, you don't know what people think about you or are afraid of you, that you may be desiring them, yeah. things yeah. like that, that that we don't have to deal with. That yeah. points us to something we've talked about before, and that is the exclusion of the category of non-sexual friendship. Mm. Right. You know, I have good she friends. She spoke I, really well about that in the book. Yeah. yeah. I have good male friends, I have good female friends. Obviously, the rules with a good female friend are slightly different as a married man than they are with my, my good male friends. Right. Uh, but that's an increasingly rare thing in the world. I've just mm. been reading in my devotions Kent Hughes' Disciplines of a Godly Man, which was written over 20 years ago. Yeah. And he talks there about the discipline of friendship and how difficult mm-hmm. it was in the, is in the early 90s, he's writing, <laughs> for men to have relationships with with other men, the fear that people think they're homosexuals. Right. That was 25 years ago. Yeah. Wow. 25 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. It is even more relevant now than it was then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because if you look back in history, even the letters, say, from 19th century, some famous men, including Abraham Lincoln, there were <clears> speculations <throat> about, his, about the fact that he might have been homosexual because he, had, he wrote letters to male friends that were very affectionate. But that yeah. wasn't unusual at that time. Yeah. Because well, men had more freedom to have that sort of a camaraderie with their male friends that wasn't automatically suspect at that yeah. time. Right. I bet Abraham Lincoln's friends allowed him to enter his house, Todd, when he'd driven, <laughs> driven hundreds of miles for his uh, installation as president. Um, mm, that's, yeah, he's, that's he's secure in his manhood, I would imagine. True, true. So, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want you in my house because I didn't want people talking. You know, that was the whole that was the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I think. I mean, obviously, uh, we we very much appreciate the book. We we highly recommend it. Um, and I think Carl's critique is 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 accurate in that in that one area. Also, I think given Amy's uh, insight is 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 important because there, there, there will be, I think, a burden for the one who struggles with same-sex attraction to have healthy same-sex friendships and them not be considered suspect. At the same time, I think, Carl, the, the point that you alluded to, that the, 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 the single woman, for instance, who longs to be married, to have a husband and children, 
she carries a, a temptation to, why isn't God giving me this good thing? That the homosexual who's thinking rightly or the person struggling with the same-sex desire, they understand that is not something they can have. They can't have a, a same-sex relationship uh, in that sense. But that lonely woman or that lonely man in, in our congregation has to wonder at times, why isn't God giving me this this good thing? And that must be a difficult thing to, to, to navigate. And we have to help them with that. I think if nothing else, what, what she's saying there, which I absolutely affirm, is we have to be careful not to be glib in the way we yeah. deal with people, particularly lonely people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there can be very trite answers. Uh, and I think what she's pointing to there perhaps is you know, a time for silence, a time for, for sitting and listening to somebody's pain mm-hmm. rather than drawing glib comparisons. So on that level, I definitely, yeah. definitely mm-hmm. would, would, would and And as you've already saying. said, you're going to learn great things about repentance from this book. You're going to learn great things about what genuine conversion is. You're going to learn great things about sin, what sin is, the difference between admitting your sin and genuinely confessing and repenting your sin. She has some great stuff on that. And, of course, just terribly important and timely things on biblical anthropology, the doctrine of man, which because of what we're going through right now is another one of those doctrines which the church needs to return to and teach with great clarity on. Her book isn't just about sexual identity. It's really about life in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, even for those who may be tired of hearing about all these issues with sexual identity, I I just learn so much when I read from Rosaria. I think she's um, challenging, and there's just so much to meditate on afterwards. So it's just about so much more. Yeah, that's a really important point, Amy. You're going to benefit from this book in all of those ways, Mm -hmm. regardless of... Uh, of of the homosexual part of this, which she addresses very, very well. Yeah, you're, you're going to be challenged so much in some great areas of doctrine and life in Christ. Um, it's it's very valuable. So so this this book is going to last a long time, whether or not the issue of homosexuality is in the headlines or not. Mm-hmm. It's going to be lastingly valuable. And for that reason, we're going to do a second podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on this book in a yes, couple indeed. of weeks when we look at another aspect of her argument uh, that dealing with community and hospitality as an important aspect of the character of God and therefore of the character of God's people. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Mortification of Spin. Uh, please visit our website mortificationofspin.org and we look forward to you being with us next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Make sure to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to enter for your chance to win Openness Unhindered by Rosaria Butterfield. Next episode, a special guest joins the host to talk about a particularly tough church issue. Dr. Valerie Hobbs, we've asked Valerie to come on the program today to talk about what the complementarian church needs to know about the position of and vulnerability of of women in its day-to-day life and indeed in its more extreme manifestations as would happen in a church trial or a presbytery trial. Hear more next time on Mortification of Spin. 
Thanks for listening, and don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to read more from Amy, Carl, and Todd on their blogs. While you're there, enter to win Rosaria Butterfield's book, Openness Unhindered. Have you recovered from the emotional trauma of the Hulk Hogan scandal, by the way? I was wondering if... Oh, Hulk... Well, the, the irony about Hulk Hogan is he's been taken down because he used the N-word. Right. Uh-huh. Right. On a sex video, committing adultery, uh-huh. but the big thing is the N-word he used at the end, apparently. Yeah. Um, but knowing that Amy's into a WWF or whatever... I am not into WWF. <laughs> But I did watch Ronda Rousey clock her opponent. Boy, that was <laughs> ugly, wasn't it? Man. That was crazy. She that woman is a my beast. butt in two seconds. Is she the top M- this top woman MMA uh-huh. person? Uh-huh. I saw her interviewed on the TV the other day. She was a judo Olympian too, though. Yeah, I saw that. Only a bronze medalist, though. <laughs> well, I don't say that to her in person. Whatever you do, she was did. only a bronze medalist. That would be insulting. I mean, she's it's the word only. The best that's the problem. out there right now, man. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not the bronze. Pounds. Did you see the beast that she was fighting? Uh-huh. That woman was scary. Uh-huh. They're all scary. <laughs> if we arranged an evangelistic cage fight, do you think you could take it down, Amy? Yes, uh... No way. <laughs> Heck no. She's she's a beast. She is.